We're going to be in Isaiah 26 this morning. In my pastoral care work, I um, have worked with a pretty good amount of trauma, and uh, I enjoy the study of counseling people through trauma. And so I, whenever I see a movie or something, a book that has the topic of trauma in it, I like to read it to kind of understand a little bit more about it. And I recently watched a movie uh, that was uh, claiming to be about the topic of PTSD, and I wanted to kind of observe the filmmaker's take on the topic. Um, but it wasn't their commentary on the topic of PTSD that interested me. There was this one throwaway scene, really didn't have much to do with the plot line at all, uh, in which two of the main characters, uh, and I would say the two main dysfunctional characters, um, were discussing something. Um, one of the characters just had a visit with some other dysfunctional family members. I'm sure many of us either are those dysfunctional family members or we can uh, know what that feels like, right? And they had uh, uh, visited this, uh, these family members and they were portrayed, the family members were portrayed stereotypically as the wild-eyed, fanatic, weirdo Christians. And so the first dysfunctional character asks the second, how were they? And the second character responds, very Christian. To which the first character responds, uh, you know that we're Christian too, right? And the second character, character looks back at him somewhat stunned, and the first character quips, you know that Catholics are Christian, right? We're Catholic, you know that, right? And it was interesting as I uh, listened to this because the first character was relying on a family lineage, a tradition, perhaps even a little bit of a belief, uh, while the second character had already decided in his mind, quite decisively by his look, that they obviously were not Christians because of the lifestyle that they had chosen to live. They had chosen the dysfunctionality that they were living in. Now, I bring up this scene because I find it's one that speaks very much to the contemporary scene of today. Many people, in fact, most of the United States, even though the rise of the nuns, those who claim no religion, has definitely leapt, uh, most of America claims to be Christian and wanders around stating, as we discussed a few weeks ago, I am a Christian. But the response from non-believers around them all too often, as I've found, is the same wild-eyed stare that was in that movie, that if it had a word attached to it, would categorically respond, really, you're a Christian? How would I have known? And this is the topic that we'll be thinking through and responding to as we look at our text today in Isaiah 26. What is a Christian? And put in a different way, who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Now, this is a huge, huge topic for us to understand because by extension, answering this question will tell us, tell us individually and tell us, Mission Fellowship, who we are to be in this world. This discussion, I believe, starts with one of the main filters that we've used to get through Isaiah. You guys remember this filter, the idea of a kingdom. Isaiah is very much about the kingdom of God, and a kingdom is a king ruling a people. Everybody say it with me. A kingdom is a king ruling a people. Let's try that one more time. A kingdom is a king ruling a people. Now, this is really, really important to understand for the book of Isaiah and really the Bible as a whole. And we spent the last few weeks really studying the idea of the messianic king and his rule, and we've quickly and fully moved through many different chapters over the last few weeks talking about what his ruling will look like, the destruction of the kingdoms that are against him. Those that represent the adversary, Satan, and his reign over his kingdom. And so we've looked very heavily at a king and what ruling looks like to an extent. And today and next week, we're going to be talking about this piece that's the last piece. 
What is the people? We're going to slow down drastically today and focus on a people through a bit of the chapters, uh, chapter 26 and 27. We're going to only go through a little bit of uh, what these are. Um, so you can see the verses there. We're going to jump around in these two chapters. And then next week, we're going to cover the remaining lines of those chapters. So last week, we saw that the earthly city of darkness had been destroyed and God's people await the fullness of the city of God. Today, in the victory song we're about to read, Judah is singing praises and victory over the wicked kingdoms of the earth. And we will see in their song what that city and its inhabitants look like. So let's take a look at Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as bulwarks, or as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. The first thing that Isaiah outlines for us here is this. You can write this down. The characteristics of the city of God. The characteristics of the city of God. Now, to fully understand all of the characteristics of the city of God, we would need to look at all of Scripture, but we don't have time for that today. We're just focusing on Isaiah 26. And so in these two verses, I want to take a look at three different things that it speaks of describing the city of God. And then Isaiah is going to take us from there and discuss the idea of the inhabitants of the city of God. So first, we see three qualities of the city itself. Here you go. The first one is that it's a city of strength a city of strength. The language that's used here speaks of strength that is inherent. It's not based upon circumstance. All the cities that were brought under judgment that we've been talking about to this point, they were strong at one point, but because of their circumstances, they fell. But this strength, the strength of the city of God, was not temporary, was not based on circumstances. It is a strength that lasts forever. I don't know about you, but some days I wake up feeling very strong, feeling like I have confidence, feeling like I know who I am and what life is to be and why I'm here and I have purpose. And other days I don't want to wake up. You know what I mean? How amazing is it that the city God calls us to inhabit is one in which strength does not move because of circumstances. Oh, I long for that day where I fully know who I am in Christ, where I fully know who he is, and where I look to my brothers and sisters around me and we stand in firmness of strength knowing that circumstances will not change it, that there is no other shoe to drop, but simply God's strength is there. The pieces of the city that he has are defensively strong. The walls and the bulwarks, we don't understand this, but these are the walls around a city with the castle or the uh, towers on them from which they would shoot bows and arrows and throw rocks and they would protect their city. And these are metaphors for this word salvation. In the Hebrew, this word salvation is actually a noun. It could better be translated an act of salvation. He sets up an act of salvation. Salvation, that's the more literal rendering. And what is this talking about? Well, we know, we have 2020 hindsight. We know that the act of salvation that God the Father was setting up came in the form of his son. That that is our defense. That that is what holds us in strength. The salvation that the Father would eventually bring through the ministry and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus the Christ can never be undone. 
No circumstance can overcome it. The reign of Christ has forever conquered and brought victory even when it doesn't feel like it. On the cross, Jesus not only reestablished the reign of God as king, but he also implemented that reign in the lives of his people, bringing the kingdom into an inaugurated place in history. And in the midst of all of it, he atoned for our sins. He paid for them. He removed them so that we can stand in fullness of joy with the Father, reconciled to him once again. This is the activity of the Christ for us on behalf of the Creator God. That strength never goes away. And so this is why Jesus could say in the New Testament, I will build my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. From our vantage point in 2017, we see that this city, it is the church. And he says to the church, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. We see this even more in the second point. You can write it down. Secondly, it's a city of righteousness. A city of righteousness. Last week, we looked at a number of connections in the book of Revelation. Let's go there again just to refresh. You can keep your finger in Isaiah 26. And go to Revelation starting in, verse, or in chapter 21. And we'll see this connection to the fact that the city of God is absolutely the church of God. And remember, we're not talking about a building or an organization. We're talking about the collective people that make up the church. Let's take a look at Revelation 21, verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, this is the city of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This helps us understand all these metaphors for the church. It's wherever God dwells, that is the church. Why does Paul use the idea of a body? Well, because Jesus came in bodily form and God fully, the weighty presence of God fully dwelt within him. Why is the church referred to as a temple? Well, because the weighty presence of God dwelt in the temple. It's where God dwells and God will be with his people in the midst of this city. Take a look at verse 9 of chapter 21. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Take a look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Because he dwells with us. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Look at chapter 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Notice the initial righteousness that we have has nothing to do with us, but it is our proximity, our closeness, our intimacy, our relationship with the Lord. How do we wash our robes? We wash them in the blood of Jesus. We wash them in his sacrifice on the cross. Our initial righteousness is not ours, it is his. We are pure because of what he has done for us. And so he brings us into his city of righteousness based on his strength and grace and mercy. Third, we see that it's a city of covenant faithfulness. Why don't you go back to Isaiah 26. It says, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. That's verse 2. And we see that it's a city of covenant faithfulness. Where do I get this? It's the nation that keeps faith. Keeps faith is a way of speaking of faithful, relational covenant that occurs between God and his people. And this is in total contrast and opposition to what we learned last week as we discussed the people that thought they were the people of God, but actually broke his everlasting covenant. Look at this from Isaiah 24.5. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Who will enter into this city? It's those who keep faithful covenant with God. To understand what this means, we simply have to go back to the first major covenant with God's chosen people, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, we could spend an entire uh, month, year going over the Abrahamic covenant and all its pieces. And many of us as pastors, we try to kind of condense it down. And so today, for our purposes, I'm going to take one section of that covenant and I'm going to show it to you. And it's one that you've been familiar with. Those in the young adults group, you've seen it a million times. Okay? Probably not a million. I'm exaggerating. But at least... 50, okay? Genesis 18, 19. God says over Abraham, for I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep, or the word in the Hebrew there could also be rendered guard, the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In this one verse, we see the covenant relationship of God to his people. He will bring what he has promised, offspring, blessing to the world, restoration of everything good. That's from Genesis chapter 12. We don't have time to go into that. But that's what God will bring. The benevolent king will bring his reign. He will restore things. And what does he ask of Abraham? That he command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Everybody say righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. Say it again. You are going to get sick of hearing that from me. This has been one of the most prominent things that has been ingrained into my spirit lately. Over the last few years, I've told you my story before, my testimony. I came down here, I wanted to teach the Bible and do nothing else, right? Seemed like a good gig to me, okay? Tired of managing 75 IT experts, tired of late nights, tired of a pager, all sorts of fun stuff. Little did I know I'd have a cell phone as a pastor that's on 24-7. I wanted to just come down and teach the Bible. 
Uh, and I didn't expect to do this, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but I'm going to embarrass somebody. Then I met Shane with him, and I met his family, and I listened to their story, and I listened to the story of how they had been exactly where I was, just simply going to church, doing the Christian thing, trying to be the good Christian. And then one day it hit him, you know what? God actually asks us to do something in covenant response. And I, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm starting to tear up. I owe this man my walk because it changed me. I realized that it wasn't just coming to church and getting a pat on the back about how I'm saved and going to heaven. It was about actually taking that love and grace and mercy and responding to it in kind. And I can never pay back my Savior, but I should spend the rest of my life trying. And the reality is, is that what he asked Abraham to do was not to pay back God for his salvation, for what he had promised him, What he had asked was to respond to this amazing miracle of grace. There's a two-way covenant there, not to earn God's grace, but as a response to it. And we are called to the same covenant of Abraham through the sacrifice of Jesus. Let me show you what it says in Romans. Paul says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And we read this as American Christians, and we say, yeah, the promise of eternal life, I get to go to heaven when I die. No, guys, the promise is the covenant. The children of the covenant are counted as offspring. And remember, the Abrahamic covenant came long before the law the Mosaic law. All God asked him to do was live under the law of Abraham, which is righteousness and justice. He didn't ask him to do any circumcision yet. He didn't ask him to do anything with the Mosaic law. This was long before that. He said, live in righteousness and justice. Why? Because that's God's heart for the world. And so what we're going to see as Isaiah transitions here is he moves from the corporate city into the discussion of who the individuals are. And this is the second big thing we see, guys. Write this down. The city is made up of its citizens. The city is made up of its citizens. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Is that a communal statement or an individual statement? Communal. The righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. What we must understand when we discuss citizens that make up the city of God is the tendency we have in our American culture to view things always from the standpoint of individualism and of self. But see, the Bible always speaks through a filter of community and communal mentality. And this is a joke for me because you can ask my wife, five years ago, I cringed every time I heard the phrase community. It was a hot button item. Uh, Every cool hipster pastor with tight jeans and an infinity scarf was talking about community. And I did not want to be that guy. Right? I was tired of it. I hated the word community. Why? Because I was selfish. As Christians, this is not just a cultural filter that we take off and favor our individual mindset. We must understand God views us as a family, as a nation, as a culture, as a city, not as individuals. Let me give you an example here. Question for you. This question and answer time. Is Jesus your individual Savior? Yes, absolutely. He's absolutely your individual Savior. I want to show you something, though. 
24 times in the New Testament the word Savior is used. Guess how many times out of those 24, Jesus is referred to as, by the author, my Savior. One time. The other 24 times, nine of those is distinctly our Savior, and out of the other 14 times are a mixture of words that speak to the communal nature of Christ's salvation. Let me give you just a couple of them here. Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Philippians 3.20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those of you who have heard me preach for a long time, You've heard me uh, speak against the idea of saying, I have Jesus in my heart. Guys, I'm not against that. I think that's amazing when people say, Jesus is my Savior. He's mine. I, I, I say, these are my children. And they say, I'm, that's my dad. I love that relationship. Please don't ever hear me as trying to take that away. But I do want to I, I get you to understand this. That's not it. You are one in the midst of a church that reaches out to its Savior. In a well-meaning effort to emphasize the personal relationship to Jesus in the last 60 or 70 years, we have overswung the pendulum to the harm of the communal. Now part of this is our culture, but I believe it goes beyond that to how the doctrine and idea of the church has changed over the last 2,000 years. For the first half of the history of the church, 1,054 years, there was one church. You didn't have different strains of worship music. You didn't have different styles of sermon teaching. I mean, obviously, you had personality coming through in the pastors and the, the leaders, the priests. But you didn't have a consumer product based upon your personal likes or dislikes. And then, for another 500 years, up until the 1500s, there were a total of two. You had two choices in town. And then the Reformation hit, which we all celebrate, absolutely, but then all of a sudden, everything went from there to what we have now, which is, in liberal estimates, 40,000 different Protestant denominations. You want a church that meets on Saturday night? Great. You want a church that meets on Sunday? You want a church that meets on the leap year, Monday of a full moon? You got it. We've become the consumer church. And we began to come up with this idea of the ambiguous church that really took root in the 1940s because of the movement of parachurches, youth groups, a number of things that only came into existence not even a hundred years ago. No longer did you have to belong to a local church to be part of the church, but in a well-meaning effort, and I do mean this, in a well-meaning effort to attract people, the church started playing to people's personal desires for the organization of the church and what that organization could do for them. Method and style now became something to split and divide over. This was the beginning of the seeker-friendly movement and the consumer movement of the church. And the idea of the ambiguous church was born and had lots of room to breed. What do I mean by this idea of the ambiguous church? Let me give you a metaphor here, okay? Let's break out of theology for a second. How many of you have uh, devices that link to the cloud? Okay. How many of you, yeah, how many of you have no idea what that means? Right, okay? Here's what it means. It's how you gain access to your data, okay? I'm an XIT guy. 
Uh, those that are really IT people in here, I'm a total poser. You're going to be laughing at me, okay? But I'm going to try for a second here. Most of us back in the, you know, 1980s with our, you know, mainframes in our living room, uh, we had a computer and you referenced and, and pulled up what was local on that computer. That's all you had. Then the internet came around and we all started connecting to the cloud. Well, my data's in the cloud. Well, guys, no. Saying your data's in the cloud just means you access it not locally but through the internet. Where does it still reside? It still resides on a computer somewhere. It still resides locally somewhere. And so to this idea that, you know, I have data in the cloud, well, guys, if it just actually goes in the cloud and it's not living on a computer, it means it's lost. (laughs) Never to be regained. But this idea is actually very interesting when you show it to, or when you compare it to the church. Because this is how people view the church. I first came down here, and uh, when I bought my truck at the local tr- uh, Ford dealership, I was talking to the guy, and he gave us a great deal on it because I was saying, I'm planting a church, I need a good deal, I'm, I'm poor, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's awesome, I go to church. And I said, really? What church do you go to? And he goes, you know, I, I don't know the name of it. Um, my wife mostly goes, I, you know, it's just not my thing. I can't tell you the number of times I've had that exact same conversation down here in Salem. Okay, if the person doesn't go to church but goes to a church, I guarantee you they go to one of the big three. Everybody knows Morningstar, Salem Alliance, and People's Church. They probably go there or maybe Dayspring. That's what people say. Well, I go, I go to Salem Alliance. When was last time you went? Oh, you know, it's, it's been a few months or I don't know. Ladies, if your husband didn't show up for a few months at home, what would you do? You'd call the police because they're missing. And if they continue to be missing, you might divorce them. But this is how we view the church. It's a cloud. I'm part of the church. Guys, when people write to the church in the New Testament, are they writing to an ambiguous group of people? No. When they write to the church at Rome, who are they writing to? The church at Rome. When they write to the church at Galatia, who are they writing to? The church at Galatia. When they write to the church at Ephesus, who are they writing to? The church at Ephesus. And each of these letters and many of other, Paul's other letters have a section on theology and then it's always followed up with this is a command of how you live within the local church. When John wrote to the churches in Revelation, he says, let those who have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, meaning the local churches. To be part of the church is to act out life within the context of the local church and live that local church's effect on the world around you. So when it says love one another, you don't go, oh, that's just such a great idea. You know, when I have a chance to love someone, I really think I'm going to employ that good piece of advice. No, it means go to church, love one another, and I'm not talking about Sunday mornings. Be part of the church. Remember, it's not this building or this event time. It is you. Love one another, it says. When the people in our community want to see what Jesus looks like, what do they do? They, they, I'm going to start subscribing to Christianity today because I want to see what the church looks like. No, what do they do? They look at their local church that is two blocks away and they say, who's Jesus? They look to the church in their neighborhood. And the people of God are to attract the world around them to the kingdom by the way they interact and live. 
This is evangelism. This is spreading the gospel. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy here. Let me show you the Old Testament view of it. Moses says in Deuteronomy, this is Deuteronomy 4, starting in verse 5. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep those laws, keep those commands, and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, meaning the non-believers, who when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? We, like Israel, are to be that chosen people of God that attracts the nations to God by the way we live. Guys, our words mean nothing if they are not substantiated by deeds. Compare these two verses. First one is Isaiah 60, verses 2 through 3. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And compare this to what Paul said to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is by our activity that we evangelize the world, that we proclaim the gospel. That is why when we say to the world around us, I am a Christian, they look at us and they say, really? I, I, I never would have guessed. Speaking of the church in their book, The Drama of Scripture, Bartholomew and Goheen say this. They speak of the church this way. This newly formed community of the early church was attractive to outsiders The life of the believing community radiates the light of the kingdom and thus draws people from darkness. They do not become believers as a result of missionary activity in the New Testament. Rather, the fascination emitted by the people of God draws them close. The people of God are just that. They're a people, a family. It is a people that live life together in an effort to reflect Jesus to the world around them. It is a people that learn the way of Jesus together and then carry it out together. The people of God are a people that share in one another's ministries, in one another's trials, in one another's triumphs. When one sins, we all bear the weight of that sin. When one mourns, we all mourn with them. When one rejoices, we all rejoice and celebrate with them. When one is saved, we all experience salvation. What we have unknowingly shown the unbelieving world around us is that the church is an organization with services rendered that we can consume in varying ways in various times at various locations. A Christian concert here, a youth group there, a woman's study here, a men's study there. My church doesn't have all the resources that my family needs, so I still like it and I'm going to stay there, but I'm going to go consume other things elsewhere as opposed to the truth that the Bible teaches us that each local church is a local outpost, 
of a redeemed community that operates under the covenantal love of God with one another in an effort to attract the world by their love one for another. And this is where we must start when we talk about the qualities of the citizens of the city of God. It is a people acting together toward the common goal of unity with Jesus and with one another. The city is made up of its citizens. But Isaiah moves on from here, and he makes this transition into the individuals, and he says to us the primary characteristics of the citizens of God's city. The primary characteristics of the citizens of God's city. Let's take a look there at Isaiah 26, 3. It says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. What we see in verses 3 and 4 here is a thing that each of the inhabitants of the city have. They each have a steadfast mindset towards one purpose and person. And because of that, they will keep and stay in perfect peace and wholeness because their trust is in God at all times. This word here that's rendered mind is a, a funny one. Uh, it actually could more literally be translated, he has a firm desire that does not change. The Hebrew is actually switched from the English, and it, it could be translated this way. He has a firm desire that does not change. He is protected in shalom, shalom. And remember, that word shalom does not just mean absence of conflict. It means wholeness, restoration. Because he trusts in you, it says. The citizen of the city of God's greatest desire is God, and all else fades away. They trust God with their lives they state, I am yours, Lord, save me, use me. You are my everything. My greatest and deepest desire is you and to stand before you and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is their ever-present cry. Nothing comes before that. Nothing comes before that. And we can trust God because he does not change. And so keeping our minds stayed upon him and his purposes and his desire to bring restoration and righteousness and justice to the earth that will come at his second coming, to keep our minds stayed on that brings us to that strength of an everlasting rock. Why has he not changed? Well, it says right there in verses 5 and 6. Why can we trust him? Is because he is a righteous and just God and he will bring down the arrogant, the proud, the abuser, the oppressor, and he will raise up the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. He is a God who has never changed. His throne is established in righteousness and justice, the Bible says, over and over and over again. So what does it look like when a person has their mind set on God and his ways? Well, this is where we see the fourth point. This is my last major point here. We see the walk of the citizens of the city. We see the walk of the citizens of the city. In 
just so you know, that actually is a little bit wrong. That should be Isaiah 26, verses 7 through 9, not 3 through 4. Sorry. 26, 7 through 9, and then 27, 2 through 6. The walk of the citizens of the city. Let's really quickly refresh what the walk is not. What the walk is not. I'll give you a, finish to, a minute to finish writing that all down. And then I want you to turn backwards in Isaiah, and we're going to take a quick look at what the walk of the citizens of the city is not. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Remember in Isaiah chapter 1 that they were the most religious of people. They tithed all the time. They went to church all the time. They knew their scriptures really well. And yet God calls them and he says in verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. What's that called, guys? Two words, righteousness and justice. He's not telling them to do it because they're already doing it in spades. He's telling them to do it because it's nowhere in their religion. They go to church, they pay their tithe, they know scripture. Look at what he says of them as a city in verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. He's basically saying your religion is fake. It's worthless because you don't have at its core righteousness and justice. Look at verse 27. What will happen when that city becomes redeemed by the work of God? Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. What is the theme here, guys? Two words, righteousness and justice. Turn to chapter 5, when Isaiah speaks of them as a vineyard that gets destroyed because it's fallen apart. It's not fruitful. Look at chapter 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plantings. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Two words, guys. Say it with me. Righteousness and justice. They were not performing their covenant part of righteousness and justice in response to God's blessing and faithfulness. So he calls them out. The entire book of Isaiah, he calls them out. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Hans, you're just picking all these out. Guys, this is everywhere. I could spend hours going through the Psalms and the Proverbs and 1 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Samuel and 2 Kings, and we will get to the New Testament. The other day I was walking through the house and my daughter was singing, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. She was doing it with the same terrible pitch and harmony that I have. Where did she learn to do this? Because she's my reflection. Because she's close to me. How do you know a Christian? They reflect the one who sits on the throne in righteousness and justice. When we look at Isaiah 26, we see that this is what God is calling us to as individuals within the city. Look at verse 7. Go back to 26 verse 7. I know I'm hopping around a lot today. 
26 verse 7. The path of the righteous is level. You, God, make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. We see that God is directing their path in righteousness and justice. Where do I get that here? Well, we see the righteous right right away. Those that practice righteousness. That's what righteous means. And they are the ones that dwell in the path of, as it says, your judgments. Now, again, I know I've been using Hebrew a lot lately, but you have to when you're reading Isaiah. The word here for judgments comes from the word mishpat. And mishpat is used 418 times in the Old Testament. And 112 of those times it is translated as justice. See, to bring judgments is to bring the justice of God. And this is why it can be translated justice or commandments. In the NASB, those of you that have that, this is what it says. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. In the NIV, it puts it even more simply. I like this one. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your laws, we wait for you. You see, these are the unfruitful or these are the fruitful people in comparison to the unfruitful people of verse 5, or chapter 5. In chapter 5, they were the unfruitful vineyard. Here is the fruitful people of God's vineyard, and he says this explicitly in chapter 27. Go there with me. 27 verse 2. Just flip your page. 27 verse 2. Look at what it says there. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them, I would burn them up together, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. What is that fruit? Well, we as Americans, we love the idea of thinking about things. So we say, oh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We love that section. And that is good, guys. That is the basis of fruit. But fruit is something tangible as well. Guess what the fruit of the Christian is? It's two words. Righteousness and justice. Okay, Hans, we get it. Righteousness and justice. Remember, this is what Abraham was supposed to teach his his kids and those after him. And remember that we are children of Abraham, children of Israel, it says in Romans. So what is this righteousness and justice? Here's what it is. Righteousness can be defined this way. Righteousness is right relationship between God, myself, others, and God's creation. Righteousness is right relationship between God, myself, others, and creation. It is the fulfillment of reconciliation. What is justice? Justice is the activity that brings about righteousness. Those of you that are a little bit more tactile in your learning, let's do it this way. Everybody watch me here, okay? Help you learn this. It's taught to me by a wonderful pastor friend, okay? Righteousness is right relationship between God, self, others, 
and creation. It's the sign of the cross. Easy way to remember it. God, myself, others, and his creation. It is the restoration that God is working to bring about that will fully come at his second coming. Now, throughout the Bible, throughout the Bible, he condenses this down and gives us explicit commands of how to bring about righteousness and justice. And there are four groups that he always talks about. Know who those are? Let's take a look here. Four groups. The fatherless, the widows, the sojourner, our current day word for that is refugee, by the way, and the poor. The fatherless, the widows, the sojourner, and the poor. And these capture the idea of those who are oppressed. And you could add other groups into that in our current day understanding. But these are the groups that he always uses to capture the heart of God, that he wants to bring down oppression and restore the broken. This idea is everywhere. I have a list here that if I had time, I would take you through, and it would take forever. For our purposes, we're going to go to one place. We're going to look at Jeremiah 7. I'll throw it up on the board here. Jeremiah 7, starting in verse 3 through 8. This is what it says. Jeremiah 7, 3 through 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Religion, religion, religion. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, refugee, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. This is the same idea that is captured very easily in the New Testament. In the book of James, chapter 1, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans, another word for that is fatherless, and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Martin Luther, in his emphasis of grace, which I am so thankful for, did not want to put James into the Bible because he felt it was too works-based. And he wanted to separate the new from the old because the Old Testament is too works-based. We'll talk about this next week. But guys, just go look at the parable of the talents. Go look at the parable of the separation of the sheep and the goats. What is it that God weighs the activity of his people? Did they visit the afflicted? Did they care for the oppressed? We are absolutely justified by his grace and his grace alone, but his grace requires a response. And that response gives us the evidence that we have truly accepted his justification. And so in verse 8, Go back to chapter 26 of Isaiah. We're almost done here. Chapter 26 of Isaiah in verse 8. 
He says, in the path of your judgments, in the path of your law, in the path of your justice, we wait for you, God. It's interesting. This word wait in the Hebrew is kavad. It has a connotation of multiple pieces being bound together in the wait. It is an innately communal word, and it could be expressed this way. Isaiah's words could be expressed this way. A covenant community bound together in longing and hope for their Lord while living a life that reflects his heart of righteousness and justice. Sounds kind of like the church, doesn't it? A covenant community bound together in longing and hope for the Lord while living a life that reflects his heart of righteousness and justice. This is what it means to wait in the path of God's justice, to walk on the path of the righteous that he has made level for us. The reason it says he has made it level for us is because he is the one that has done the work that has given us the power. He has given us the Holy Spirit and his word. And we have no excuse. When a path is level, there is no excuse. This group of people that is talked about here, the people of the city of God, want nothing more than for God's name and character to be known and seen. And as verse 9 shows us in Isaiah 26, it is when the community of God yearns for nothing more than the Lord and that his name be known that they begin to practice the community of justice in the earth. And the people around them, as verse 9 says, for when your justice, your judgments are in the earth, same word, mishpat, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. By this community acting the way it's called to in righteousness and justice, the world learns, they are taught the righteousness that God exists in, that he is. Are we this mission family? A covenant community bound together in longing and hope for the Lord while living a life that reflects his heart of righteousness and justice. Guys, so many of you in here are absolutely this. So many of you. And I'm so thankful for you. And I want to encourage you. Keep going. One day it will all make sense because we will stand before the throne of righteousness and justice. And in those hardest of days, I will reiterate for you what was just told me this last week. When you strive for righteousness and justice, the enemy will always attack. Get ready for a war. But I believe also that there are many of us in here that are not on board with this. Guys, we are only as strong as our weakest link. And for this to prove out the way that it should and the way that we are called to make it prove out, it is not the question of if you should love and serve your church family, it is how. It is not if you should love the fatherless, it is how. It is not if you should love the widows or the single moms or the poor or the needy or the sojourner or those that have fallen in sin, it is how. It is not if you should volunteer at this church, it is how. The same group of people cannot do everything. Guys, you are not called to some of these, you are called to all of them to some capacity. 
We will all do things to varying degrees, but it is by the participation of the whole that we get done what we need to do to speak the righteousness and justice and the mercy and grace of Jesus to the world. Guys, I cannot foster parent right now. We have thought about it, prayed about it, sought counsel on it, and Kelly and I cannot do it right now. But the Withams, the Coles, the Ratliffs, the Hunters can. This does not mean that I get free from the idea of serving the fatherless. I serve in other ways by supporting them, by doing DHS cleanup, by doing whatever I can. And guess what? The Withams and the Coles and the Ratliffs and the Hunters cannot give the majority of their energy to pastoring and leading this church. But they can support the leadership who do. You see how that works? We all have a part in the body. We all serve the collective whole of expressing the kingdom of God to the world around us. Guys, my heart breaks when I have someone come to me and say, I'm not called to minister to the children of this church. That's why I don't do kids' ministry. Hopefully you can imagine why I have a heartbreak when that happens. Every one of us is called to minister to the children of this church. My heart breaks when one of you comes to me and says, I'm not called to serve DHS. I don't agree with their politics. Guys, in this culture, there is one way to serve the fatherless, and it is through DHS. I'm not called to, no, just stop. Yes, you are. Because there is one calling in the Bible, and it is called to reflect the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. And that entails everything we've been talking about. Why were we saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast? So we could then work and reflect God's goodness within the community of faith called the church to the world around us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. At the end of the day yesterday, I don't know what it was, probably like one in the morning, right, Sarah? Something about that time. Sarah texted me, and she said, hey, I got this from Gwen, who is our main contact at DHS. And I was wrestling with how to finish up this heavy teaching, and here's how. This is what Gwen wrote to Sarah, and a huge thanks to Sarah for doing her part in organizing the body to be the body. This is what she said. Sarah, what an amazing day. The church body is such an amazing example of the hands and feet of Christ. They're giving hearts both young and old. I was brought to tears by their generosity, attitude, and hard work today. Thank you isn't enough, but please let them know the partnership that you all are building with the state is how I picture Christ would have it. Watching it from my seat is both inspiring and humbling. Thank you all. In the throne room of God's temple, Isaiah realizes his brokenness back in Isaiah 6, and he says, I am a man of uncleanliness, unclean lips. And God, and God alone, does the work of redeeming him, sending a burning angel with a burning coal from the burning altar to touch his lips. And he is saved. 
And he doesn't sit there and just ponder his salvation. God says, who will I send? And what does Isaiah do? That's not my calling, Lord. Let me demonstrate it for you. I'm here! Send me! Send me! We need volunteers to help for the kids' ministry. I'm here! Send me! We need people to serve DHS. I'm here! Send me! We need people to go under the bridge and help the homeless. I'm here! Send me! I'm here! Send me! Hopefully you see my passion. We need some passion, guys. I'm watching the 40 or so people in this church that do the majority of the work and they're tired. The rest of you need to get off of your hands. Your religion is worthless. Get to work. Get to work. I say that not to demean you. I say that not to harm you or make you think that you earn your salvation through works. I say it to you because Jesus is saying your salvation isn't there. It's worthless unless it's reflected in righteousness and justice. Church family, the kingdom of Jesus will not fully come to bear until he returns. I know this and I know it well. But until that day, we must bind our hearts together longing for that day while also living a life in which we empty ourselves of our selfish desires, our personal agendas, our timelines, our sports schedules, and every opinion that we have that fights against that purpose. And we work together to show the heart of God in righteousness and justice. How do we respond to this today? By changing your mind, adjusting your schedule and your finances, and by participating in this community as we love and serve the world around us. Those of you that do this regularly, I am so thankful for you. And please do not walk out of here today with anything other than thanks and encouragement and strength. But to the rest of us, I beg of you, take on the personal conviction that the Spirit is working in you to minister. And it doesn't just have to be what this church does Ask the Lord, Lord, what are you passionate about? So what can I be passionate about? And then do it and we will come behind you to serve you and support you. You are a Jesus follower. Be passionate about what he is passionate for. And let us go love and serve the world in his name.